Father, we're gathered this morning as a body of people who by your grace have been persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. By your kindness, we have been opened up to the truth of the gospel. We've, we've been adopted into your family and so we, we sing with, with joy praises to you. We sing with joy the truths of the good news. And yet in many ways, we are also people who are seeking rest from the difficulties that have come upon us as a result of having followed Jesus Christ. And there may be ways, even this week, that some of us have been tempted to shrink back from faithfulness to Jesus in order to find some kind of relief or rest from the hardships of discipleship. For that reason, Father, we're, we're grateful that we come to the text that we come to this morning. We pray for the help of your Holy Spirit as we study it. We pray for his help in that we would not only understand it, but that we would embrace its truth and heed its warning, joyfully obeying it. For it is pertinent to us as it was to the original recipients over 2,000 years ago. So please help us in these things, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This morning we'll be considering verses 1 through 13. We're going to begin by just reading verses 9 through 13. So as you find your place there, let's stand together. And we will begin reading in verse 9. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that should have been the first clue that the Christian life is hard. In Acts chapter 14, we, we find Paul and Barnabas encouraging new believers to continue in the faith, 
saying to them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Essentially saying to them, continue to believe in Jesus, cling to Him in faith. The Christian life is hard. That was the message of the apostles. The original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, they learned that very well. The Christian life is hard. We've learned that. In spite of how Christianity is sold in many circles today, the truth is that the Christian life is, is difficult. Sometimes there is straightforward persecution, but virtually all of the time, our lifestyle comes into conflict with what's considered normal in the culture so that at the very least we're regarded as backward weirdos. When we come to Jesus, we take on this immediate and lifelong fight with indwelling sin. We know based upon passages like Romans chapter 6 that we're no longer enslaved to sin such that we have to sin, but there is residual indwelling sin that we grapple with and it's exhausting. And that, that struggle isn't just with physical outward sins, but, but it is Perhaps even more so with our own thoughts, we're constantly striving to conform our minds to a standard that is foreign to the fallen world, and it, it's tiring. And then on top of all of these things, there's, there's the mission that we've been given to deliver a countercultural gospel to every part of the globe, and when we're faithful in that, we're met with regular rejection of that message, which, which feels like regular rejection of us personally. On top of all that, there are trials that come just simply as a result of living in a fallen world. And it is a ton of pressure, and it is normal. It is, it is quite normal for the follower of Jesus Christ to desire rest from these things. And we may look at the people of the world and think to ourselves, goodness, they, they have available to them all kinds of things. To ease the tensions of this life. They're not weird. They're accepted. If they're not accepted, they, they have any manner of things available to them to gain the acceptance and, and the adoration of the people around them. They don't feel this constant weight of sin because the, the, their consciences aren't burdened with this, this desire to pursue holiness. And th they can just give in to sin and feel better when other trials hit. Trials that come just as a result of living in a fallen world, at least they can zone out with electronics or they can get drunk or they can get high or they, they can do something to make them feel better right now and not feel guilty about it. It's, it's hard to follow Christ. And, and we may be tempted to think that the pathway to rest from difficulty is turning from Jesus, we may be tempted to think, well, well, I'll just dabble in sin a little bit to relieve that pressure just momentarily, or, or I'll flirt with another worldview that, that offers me something that's a bit more practical, some self-help, or I'll be quiet about my faith and, and so relieve a little bit of the pressure, some of the ostracism of the people that I work with, that I live, live closely with. Or I'll just give up altogether and go another way. Hebrews tells us, don't do 
any of that. Don't do that. The pathway to rest, the pathway to actual rest is turning toward Christ in faith, clinging to Him and trusting Him until the day of ultimate rest. That's why this section that we're in right now, chapter 4, it's bookended with strong looks at the person of Jesus Christ, commending Him as the faithful apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the faithful servant of God. He's the one who has already completed the journey that we're now enduring, but He's done so flawlessly, and He is therefore uniquely qualified to help us endure it. And the idea then is look to Jesus perpetually and trust Him, cling to Him. Yes, it's hard, but Jesus is the only way to get to ultimate rest. And in between those two bookends, looking at Jesus, pointing to Jesus, saying trust, to, trust Jesus, in between those two bookends, we have this mini-sermon that the author of Hebrews deliver, delivers on Psalm 95, pointing to the negative example of the wilderness generation. When things got tough, much like things are tough for us, when things got tough for the wilderness generation, they didn't trust God. Rather, they sought temporal relief. They sought temporal rest in Egypt. Their hearts were hardened against God, and so they missed out on rest altogether. And so while we are still on this road toward God's rest, we should learn from their failure by clinging to Christ in faith so that we will enter God's ultimate rest. In this section, the author gives us several explicit and implicit directions for hanging in there until we enter God's rest. And the first of those is... Fear missing God's rest. It's a very straightforward command. Fear missing God's rest. So let's go back to verse 1. Hebrews 4.1 reads this way. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So first of all, there's that clause while the promise of entering His rest still stands. Another way to render this from the original language would be The promise to enter His rest is left over. While that promise to enter His rest is left over. We we have a lot of promises that have already been fulfilled. This one is left over. It It hasn't been fulfilled yet. It hasn't happened yet that we've entered God's rest. That is, it's it's yet future. Okay? Now now let's let's be clear that, that the fact that we haven't entered God's rest doesn't mean that at this point in the Christian life, where we all find ourselves even right now this morning, it doesn't mean that there is no rest of any kind, no peace of God to be had, no comfort, no soul rest available to the believer. That isn't the case at all. If you're taking notes, you might write down Psalm 116.7. Psalm 116.7 reads, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The psalmist seems to be talking about a present reality of peace in his soul that comes as a result of his relationship with the Lord. That kind of rest also seems to be what Jesus promised in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 29. 
Very, very familiar passage to many of us where, where Jesus said, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And right there in Matthew eleven twenty nine, it seems that Jesus is saying at the same time, look, this is going to be hard. Take my yoke upon you. This, this isn't going to be easy, but there's going to be rest at the same time. Similarly, 4, 7, Philippians 4, 7 indicates that Prayerfully handing over our requests to God leads to a peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's not an end times peace that we only get when we cross over into the next life, but it's a present day peace that we can enjoy right now. Similarly, Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We can have that right now. And so God's rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 must be something else. And when we read about God's rest that we don't have yet, we ought not infer from that that there's no comfort to be had right now. There's no peace to be had right now. It's just all toil and misery. Not the case. We do have trouble, but in the midst of that trouble, we have the very peace of Christ that can dwell in our hearts. God's rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 is an ultimate rest that comes in the next life. And that he indicates in this passage, we haven't reached that rest yet, doesn't mean that we can't have any rest in the Lord in the sense that we we, we can't trust Him now. We can't enjoy peace in our souls now due to our current fellowship with Him. We can. The rest we we enjoy right now is, is peace in Christ in the midst of trouble and toil God's ultimate rest that Hebrews 3 and 4 is is referring to is the cessation of all trouble and toil altogether. And so there will be a peace in the soul and no trouble at all. So right now we have peace in the midst of trouble. God's ultimate rest is peace in the soul and no trouble. This gives you something to look forward to, right? Even as we enjoy the peace of Christ right now. In God's ultimate rest, that ultimate rest on the other side, in the next life, there's no suffering, there's no sin and temptation, no pain, no storms, no darkness. All difficulty goes away. Ultimate rest. And the point here in Hebrews 4 is, we've not attained that ultimate rest yet. And so, what he wants us to understand is that we are in a very similar situation to the wilderness generation when the spies were bringing back their report. You haven't entered the promised land yet, he's saying. And so we, we need to let that sink in. Just as the spies hadn't yet entered, the spies in all, all Israel, they had not yet entered the promised land. So also we have not yet entered God's rest. And in light of that, the author of Hebrews says, well, then let's, let's be afraid. Let's be fearful. Now, do you know how you can tell what what a good fear is and what a bad fear is? What a godly fear is and what an ungodly fear is? This, this, This is a rule of thumb. If the Bible commands it, it's a good godly fear. If the Bible forbids it, it's an ungodly bad fear. And so this is a good godly fear. Be afraid. Be very afraid of what? 
of missing out on God's rest. Why? Because it's a good thing. God wants us to be afraid of missing out on a good thing. This is a good fear. Fear missing out on God's rest. This, and, and this is the mother of all FOMOs. The mother of all fears of missing out. It's commanded for our good. Now, how is this fear of missing out working for our good? Because it pushes us toward the one thing that will ensure that we don't miss out. What is that one thing? Faith in Jesus Christ. So the idea here is, look, let the fact that you've not yet entered God's rest move you to a good godly fear of missing out so that you won't miss out like the wilderness generation did. So how, how do we avoid missing out? That's the next point in your notes. Understand the necessity of continued faith. Understand the necessity of continued faith. So let's, let's pick up in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here he's likening the report of the spies that the Israelites heard. He's, he's likening that to the gospel that we've heard. The report that, that was brought by Joshua and Caleb, they were the two good spies, or the, the two spies that brought back the good report. That report that they brought back, he is, he is, he is comparing it to the good news. In fact, he uses the word evangelism here in, in, in very literal terms. It, Hey, this is good land, they, they said. This is good land. God's giving it to us. These nations that, that, that the others have described as, as giants that are going to eat us, actually, they're going to be food for us. Why? Because God is with us. So don't be afraid. Let's enter the land. Let's cross the Jordan. And let's take that land. That's good news, says the author of Hebrews. And, and, and again, he very literally writes, we are being evangelized just like they were. They heard good news, we've heard good news, but there's a difference between us and them. The wilderness generation did not benefit from the message that they heard. In what sense didn't they benefit from it? Well, they didn't enter the land. And why didn't they benefit from, the, from, from that message? Why didn't they enter the land? Because they didn't believe it. The, the Israelites were not united with those who heard in faith. And likely he's here talking again about Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb believed. They were ready to charge into the land. But the rest of the Israelites did not believe that message, and so they were not ready to, to charge into the land, to obey, and so they did not enter the land. Only Joshua and Caleb entered the land. The message did not benefit the Israelites because they did not believe it. And the implication is that being steeped merely in a message does not mean one receives the benefit promised by that message. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now, hang, hang in there with me for just a minute. I'll talk about uh, some grammar things here, okay? Super literally, this, this reads, for we enter into that rest, the believers for we enter into that rest, the believers. And what he's doing here is, is he is putting the word believers at the end of the clause to emphasize it. Now, what we have in the ESV, which is a fine translation, it renders it the way that it does and the way many other translations do because, because good translations try to make 
ancient documents sound like we would say things. That's exactly what a translation should do. But what we can do when we read the ESV is misunderstand what's being communicated. And what we might think the author is saying is that we who have believed at one time in the past enter His rest. And that is not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's actually not making any statement at all about when or how many times anyone has believed. He's simply saying what kind of people enter God's rest. The kind of people who enter God's rest are believers. In fact, the way that he's phrasing this, he's kind of saying that if we were spectators looking at the lives of people who enter God's rest, we were looking at their lives from the outside, their lives would be characterized by belief. Belief, trust would summarize who they are. They are trusters in Jesus. And he juxtaposes believers with the wilderness generation by this quick reference back to Psalm 95. As he has said, as I swore in my, right, my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And here's the value of that juxtaposition. The wilderness generation, they were not a people who rebelled on absolutely every occasion and said on every chance they got, go take a hike, Yahweh. They weren't that kind of people. In fact, if we were to go back to Exodus and read it straight through, we would find numerous times where they were totally into Yahweh. They worshipped and danced and sang in the aftermath of the Red Sea crossing. And in Exodus 19, when God proposed the covenant to them to be their God and, and they to be His people, they said, we're all in. In other words, this very generation, this wilderness generation, they were people who could have said, we have believed at one time, or even at many times, but they didn't continue in belief. And when it came time to cross into the land of rests, their hearts were hard and they didn't trust God. The last part of verse 3 and into verses 4 and 5 explain why it's called God's rest. He's wanting us to understand why he's using that phrase. And, it, and again, the end of verse 3, he writes, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So he's tying the rest mentioned in Psalm 95 to the rest that God himself enjoyed beginning in Genesis 2.2. You can write down Genesis 2-2 and look at that later, but he, he, he practically quotes it here. God's rest began then, Genesis 2-2, and it extends into eternity. His rest has been in existence since that seventh day of the creation narrative. Man only enters God's rest in the eschaton, that is, in the end times. Now, the Israelites entering the land of Canaan was but a picture. It was but a taste of entering God's eschatological rest, God's end times rest. And they failed to enter it because they did not believe. And in, in, in verses 3 through 5, or 3b through 5, is the author explaining that this rest that we're talking about, the rest that the people did not enter, and that the Israelites failed to enter, is God's own rest from the creative narrative. It goes that, back that far. They're entering into something with God Himself or failing to. 
So these verses largely call us to understand the necessity of continued faith. The the author exhorts us next, strive to enter God's rest by continuing in faith. Strive to enter God's rest by continuing in faith. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So God's rest still remains. It's available even now for man to enter into it. And the wilderness generation, though they heard the good news about it, did not enter it because of their disobedience. And for that reason, God then moved David long afterwards in Psalm 95 to write to a much later generation, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So the the author is showing that because David writes to a later generation, a warning regarding the possibility of missing God's rest, what that means to all of us is that the opportunity to enter God's rest is still open. It's still outstanding. He reasons further in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So Joshua, in, in the books of Joshua and Judges, he, he actually did bring the people into the land of Canaan. And his bringing the people into the land of Canaan was explicitly described as God giving the people rest. But what the author of Hebrews is arguing is if that temporal rest was the only rest God had intended for man, there would be no need for David to write anything in Psalm 95. What he's saying is there must be some kind of rest that is still outstanding for the people of God. And so then he concludes in verse 9, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Living in the land of Canaan, as the Israelites did in Joshua and Judges and thereafter, living in the land of Canaan, that was not the ultimate Sabbath rest that God intended for His people. There is something better, something better than that, and it's still outstanding. And He uses here the word Sabbath to describe that rest. He hasn't hasn't done that yet, but here for the first time, He does in verse 9. And so in verse 10, He describes why He's using that word Sabbath. So look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God rested in that his, his work, at least his creative work, was done. The believer will rest in a similar way. There's, there's, there's no more labor, no, no more toil of this life. The, the time of labor and suffering is over. And in that final rest, there's going to be a time of enjoying eternal inheritance in Christ. Remember back when we were studying Leviticus, we we considered that the Sabbath was was all about this call to enjoy God and and fellowship with Him. The cessation of labor was was for the purpose of just focusing on the Lord and and enjoying Him. And that the, the author calls God's rest a Sabbath rest indicates that this is what the new heaven and earth will be like. It's going to be like this eternal Sabbath rest where everyone is gathered to enjoy the Lord all the time. Cessation from labor for the purpose of enjoying God 
eternally. All of this, everything is leading to this strong exhortation in verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, some of us perhaps when we see the word strive in the New Testament, perhaps with this sour taste in our mouth. We think of striving as this horrific hard work. I hate yard work. You know, I, I hate yard work like it's the source of all moral evil. And so some of us may think of striving as the way that I would think about yard work, like, like just arduous misery. That's the kind of striving that, that we're called to here. But it's not. The, the, the word itself, I mean, the meaning in all the Greek lexicons is something more like what, what I and some of the rest of us experienced as young men in middle school in those moments before the bell rang to release us for lunch. Do you remember this? All, all, all the young men in middle school, as, as the bell is about to ring for lunch, Adrenaline is pumping. And you know, you can hear you can hear nothing. You can feel nothing but the desire to be first in line in the cafeteria. It is as if you have never eaten before and you will never eat again. It's that kind of, of striving. And so the bell rings and every cell in your body is moved to run to the cafeteria because that is life, getting that food. This, that's the kind of striving that we're talking about. This is a, an, a zealous acting on a deep desire. That's the kind of striving we're talking about. Zealous acting upon a deep desire. And it's a perfect verb for the kind of rest that the author is talking about. God's rest is so wonderful. This cessation of all trouble and toil for the purpose of enjoying God's presence eternally. That is so fantastic that this word, strive, is the only appropriate verb for pursuing that rest. Strive to enter that rest so that you may not fall like the Israelites. And Why did the Israelites fall? Because of disobedience. He said, so that you may not fall by the same pattern or kind of disobedience. And he's, he's thinking back to them. Now, this word disobedience, the disobedience in their example, it's a word that's worth considering for a moment. We've thought about in the past, as, we, as we've worked our way through Hebrews, that for the author of Hebrews, unbelief and disobedience, they're, they're tied so closely together that it's almost like he uses the terms synonymously. And we see that most clearly here in chapters 3 and 4. So like earlier, if you, if you jump back up to 3.19 and then look at 4.2, he wrote that they failed to enter because they didn't have faith. But then in verse 6, he says that they failed to enter because of disobedience. And here again in verse 11, he says they failed to enter because of disobedience. Well, this word for disobedience 
the word itself shows kind of a, a mixing of the ideas. And it's the same word, the, the word for disobedience in verse 11, it's the same word for disobedience in verse 6. This word so mixes these ideas that sometimes in the New Testament the word is translated unbelief and sometimes it's translated disobedience. And in fact, there are times, and this is one of them, when it appears that the word indicates disobedience precisely in the act of unbelief. I'm going to say that again so I don't miss it. The word represents disobedience in the act of unbelief, particularly unbelief in the gospel. Now, how, how, how does that work? That it is disobedience to not believe the gospel. Well, let's, let's think about a few things. Belief in God, and, and we, could, we could put under the banner of belief in God, we could put it un, under that banner, trust in God, believing the gospel, trusting in Christ. This is commanded in the Bible. We, we over the, 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 the decades and the centuries, we've, we, we've gotten into the practice of, of calling, sharing the gospel, we, we, we've called that an invitation. That is terrible language. The, the gospel is a command. So let, let me give you just a few examples of this kind of language in the Bible. Psalm 62.8, trust in Him at all times, O people. That is an imperative verb. It's a command. Trust in Him. God's commanding people to trust Him at all times. Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Command. John 14.1, believe in God. Believe also in me. That's Jesus talking. Two imperatives in one sentence. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Mark 1.15, Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Jesus talking again. Commanding repentance and belief. These are all commands. Commands to believe. Commands to trust. And, and passages like those are why we find elsewhere in the New Testament, like in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, 1 Peter 4.17, Romans 10.16, we find passages like, like those characterizing the gospel as a command to be obeyed, not an invitation to to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Now, what do you call it when you don't do what God commands? It's called disobedience. And that's why this Greek word has both of those things inside of it. Unbelief is disobedience. This particular Greek word captures that reality. We might say unbelief then is, is the chief act of rebellion from which all other acts of rebellion are given rise. So think about the Israelites again. The Israelites, they didn't trust God. They didn't believe Him when He said, look, when you go into the land, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. They didn't believe that. That was their first and chief act of disobedience, not trusting Him was disobedience. That act of disobedience was then the foundation of further acts of rebellion, including refusing to go in and take the land from the Canaanites. So, so we need to be very careful that we don't misunderstand what's being said here in these middle verses of Hebrews chapter 4. The author is not exhorting us to strive to enter God's rest by earning our salvation through works. He's given us so much gospel already. That we, we ought to know that that can't be the case. It cannot be the case that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, 
earn your way to God through works. He can't be saying that. Why? Well, let's just, let's just think through a few other things. Look at 2.17. Just go back to 2.17. He says, Christ was the propitiation for our sins. That means that Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says something very similar in 2.11, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Why? Because He was tasting the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. 2.10, He calls Him the founder of our salvation. If, if you're earning your own way to God, you don't need salvation. In 1.3, He said that, that Jesus made purification for sins. And He sits now at the right hand of the God. At the right hand of God, you don't need purification for sins if you're making your own way through works. All these things and others, I, I, could, I, I haven't exhausted Hebrews 1-4 through 4 in the last couple of minutes in, in terms of its references to salvation through Christ. All these things indicate we are not on our own in trying to please God through works. Rather, what He has been teaching us from the beginning is that Jesus Christ is your only hope before God. Trust in Him. He is the way of salvation. Trust Jesus. He's been commending faith in the person and finished work of Christ unto eternal salvation. So striving here then is not, look, you've got to kill your sin in order to, in order to get to God. So get rid of your lust, get rid of your gossip, your envy, your pride, your adultery, your foul mouth, your this, your that so that God will accept you into heaven. Work really, really hard to be a good person so that God will think you're a good person and want to spend eternity with you. That is not what he's commending here when he says, let's strive to enter that rest. Rather, he's saying, let's strive in this way. Let's daily say to ourselves, to God, to the world, I have no plea before God on the day of judgment than the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me by faith. I have no plea before God than my sins imputed to Christ on the cross. I've got no plea. I've got nothing to bring. I've got nothing to bring but sin and misery. My only hope is Jesus. I trust in Him. Striving is just clinging to that, saying that all the time. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. I trust in nothing but Christ. And I do that understanding that discipleship is a life of hardship. Discipleship is a life of hardship, and so there is this temptation to seek relief, temporal rest from that hardship. That temptation is very real in this life. So I understand that at any given moment, I can be bombarded with, with messages from the world, temptations from the enemy, thoughts from my own flesh, encouraging me to say things to myself like, I just want a break. I just want it all to stop. I want rest right now. And I don't want just peace in my heart in the midst of the storm, but I want the storm to go away. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they are right there to present a picture of life outside of faithful discipleship that, that offers me all of that. It offers me that very thing. No storm, no troubles, your best life now. 
And, and that life is, is being sold to me in various degrees all the time by, by the devil, by the world, by my own flesh, saying to me things like, just be quieter about the gospel. You'll have less trouble. Scroll on your phone instead of opening your Bible. It's easier. And you'll feel better right now. You look, look, you're miserable in your struggle with this sin. Just give in and relieve the pressure. It's easier. Don't, don't believe what the Bible says about this or that. There, there's an easier way. And, and all of those things, all of those things are just different ways of, of tempting me to not trust Jesus, to not cling to Jesus, to not say, He's the only thing that's going to get me through the difficulties of this life. But I and you, we must recognize all of that for what it is. It is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. In other words, Jesus admits right up front, He says to everybody, Yes, there's an easier way than the Christian life. I'm not trying to hide anything. There's no denying it. There is an easier way. It just so happens, though, that it's the road to destruction, not God's rest. And so Jesus says in the very next verse of Matthew chapter 7, the way is narrow. The way is hard. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so striving is clinging to Jesus saying, I am not going to go the easy way. I'm going to cling to Him. I'm not going to pretend that the Christian life is easy. It's not. But the Christian life leads to, leads to life in Christ. He's the only one that gets me there, and I'm going to trust in Him. I know that He's true. The whole point of all these exhortations in Hebrews is just keep believing. Cling to Jesus. Think back to that picture in, in, in verse 3. We enter that rest, the believers, the trusters in Jesus, enter that rest. He closes all of this in this section, instructing us to understand that God's Word will not be thwarted. Understand that God's Word will not be thwarted. Verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The Word of God is not just any other book. It does things that other books don't do. It has inherent power that cannot be stopped. Isaiah said it this way in, in his 55th chapter, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my, my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Specifically here, the author notes that God's Word exposes what is inside the human heart. Why? Because that's what God's Word intends to do. 
The language about dividing the soul and spirit, the joint and the marrow, that's all figurative language indicating how sharp, how incisive the word is. It is going to lay you open to unbelief. It's it's going to show precisely what's in your heart. Faith or lack of faith. Trust or no trust. And surely these things that he's said in verses 12 and 13, this is true of all God's word, but he's talking specifically here about Psalm 95. Because that's the text of Scripture he's been returning to over and over in these chapters. Psalm 95 exhorts the reader not to be hardened in unbelief. Psalm 95 notes that the wilderness generation, they always went astray in their hearts. It uses that word hard over and over. And so here in these last couple of verses, verses 12 and 13, he points to what the Word of God does with the heart. You can't hide from God's Word. It's going to lay your heart open. We ought not think that we'll be able to hide hide our hearts from God any more than could the Israelites. God knows whether we believe or disbelieve. He knows whether our obedience is born from faith or fear of man. And so he's giving additional motivation. Additional motivation here. Turn zealously to Jesus. there, There is no way to pull a fast one on God. there's, There's no way. That, that, that someone is, is going to merely be able to just show up at church once a week and say, well, 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 this is going to be the fruit of my life that indicates that I'm following Christ. It isn't. Faith in Jesus. That is the key to entering God's final rest. We are, we are all under various kinds of pressure. That's the name of the game as Christ followers. I talked to a couple this morning who have experienced the loss of the closest relationships in their lives because they have claimed the name of Jesus Christ. What's the temptation in situations like that? The temptation is, I'll just distance myself a little bit from Jesus. Or I'll find some other kind of relief. I'll find some kind of rest from this pain in substances or whatever. There are all kinds of temptations that would lead me away from striving to cling to Jesus until I cross into true eternal rest. Now again, that we've, that we've not entered God's rest it doesn't mean that there's no comfort or peace to be had in this life now. In fact, the author is trying to offer present comfort by commending Jesus to us as a sympathetic high priest. We'll get more into that next time, Lord willing. But there is a peace that passes understanding even in the midst of difficulty in this life. So Paul teaches in Philippians 4, as I've already mentioned, seek that peace by prayer and supplication. But set in front of yourself this this glorious reality which is God's eternal ultimate rest. And let there be in your heart a, a healthy fear of missing out on that rest. And let it drive you to Christ. Drive to cling to Him, striving to enter that rest by trusting in Jesus. Every minute of every day, not turning to the right or to the left. You do not want to miss out on that rest. Let the glory of that day motivate you to cling to Him who is faithful. The one who is faithful to the one who appointed Him. 
Let's strive to enter His rest by holding fast to our original confidence, firm to the end. I encourage you in these moments of silence that we're going to observe in a few moments, just consider the ways that you have been tempted in recent days to look to other things to comfort you. Ways that you've been strived to look for other, other means of rest outside of the Lord Jesus. Things that you can talk to other believers about. Things that you can share with them. This is how I've been tempted. Ask them how they've been tempted. So that you can discuss these things with one another and stir each other up to cling to Jesus and strive to enter into that rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great love for us and how that love has moved You to command us to have good, godly fears of missing out on good things. We thank You further that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has made a sufficient provision so that we will enter that rest. So we ask, Father, that You would grant us to strive to enter that rest by clinging to the Lord Jesus in faith. We would not look to what lies behind, but we would look to what lies ahead. And we would not look at days past, but that we would look at right now. We would trust Jesus now. We would be determined that we will trust Jesus tomorrow. Lord, help us to be very sensitive to all temptations, to turn our eyes away from Him. Lord, by Your Spirit, please make Him glorious to us and help us to be enamored with His sufficiency. Father, we, we need Your help in these things. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.